turn to Romans 16. We'll start at verse 3. Um, I want to reassure you about two things. Um, there are 27 people named in Romans chapter 16. I do not plan a sermon on each and every one of them. Uh, I, I, you know, surely we could spend six months in, uh, in Romans 16, but uh, we shan't do it. So I'm, I'm thinking right now a couple more weeks or so, and uh, of course I said that about Romans 12, but, uh, uh, but anyway, just a couple more weeks and uh, we should be finishing up the book of Romans. So that's, that's the first reassurance I want to give to you. Uh, today we'll be looking at uh, just uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Some of you are familiar with those names, others not, but uh, we'll be looking at them. The second thing I want to um, reassure you is that I have a pretty good sense of what time it is. And uh, uh, the, the um, you know, we, we may be behind schedule, but we're only behind your schedule. I'm perfectly on schedule. So. Yeah, so I'm, I'll be just fine. But I, I am aware uh, that uh, there are little ones and, and nursery workers out there who will rebel. And so uh, we'll, we'll try to be out before they get too antsy. I do want to spend a little bit of time uh, right now at this part of the service to be looking at the background of Aquila and Priscilla. Um, it will take us a, a little bit of time. I'm aware of that. I will subtract it from our uh, sermon time later on. Did you know the word sermon? Do you know what that means? comes from the Latin word for conversation. And so uh, don't you talk back, but we'll just have a conversation uh, a little bit later on about this. But I, I do want for us to get some things in, into the front of our thinking as we look at this. If you look at uh, Romans chapter 16 at, in verse 3, it says, Greet Prisca and Aquila. Prisca is the, like the official name. Priscilla was the um, sort of the diminutive. It was the name you used when you were uh, uh, more familiar with her. Um, and so greet Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Again, many of us know about uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Some of us don't. So I want for us to go back and review their history. There, for so many of the folks who are in Romans chapter 16, the only thing we know about them is their name. And maybe something that Paul says about them, you know, greet so-and-so, he's a good worker. Greet somebody else, uh, she's like a mother to me, you know, that, that kind of thing. But for Aquila and Priscilla, we actually have uh, a good bit of data upon which to um, understand who they were and where they fit into the work of the gospel and what Paul is talking about when he says that they are fellow workers. So, uh, uh, with that in mind, I want for us to go back and look at Acts chapter 18. And if you will, turn in your electronic device to Acts chapter 18. Um, old school people, turn in your Bible. Um, yeah. I'm going to tell you, while you're doing that, there's just something about holding a Bible in your hand and feeling the pages. And uh, if you've still got that new Bible smell, that's pretty good too. Okay, are you there? At Acts chapter 18... We're going to start looking at verse 1, uh, and uh, bear with me. I know where I'm going on this, so trust me. All right. In verse 1, it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, Athens is the capital of Greece. It's sort of in the middle of the, of the country. Corinth is a city that's uh, south of Athens. You go down. Uh, today, you would cross the, uh, the Corinthian Canal. At that time, it was still joined by an isthmus. And uh, so you, you would travel down and to the island that's the, the bottom part of, uh, of Greece, and that's where you would find the city of Corinth. 
Corinth was a, um, a large city. It was, I, I was trying to figure out what I would compare it to. It, it was kind of like Atlanta. You couldn't go anywhere unless you first went to Corinth. All the trade routes went to Corinth, either north or south or east and west. Um, for various reasons, uh, it, it was just a hub of, of, uh, of trading activity. And so it was a wealthy city. It was a rather prominent city, but it was also a very wicked city. In fact, today, in the English language, if you say that someone is a Corinthian, what you're saying is they have no morals, loose ethics, and they are very... Very, uh, badly behaved. Um, and that's because that's the way the folks were in Corinth back then. There was a lot of sexual immorality and a lot of, of things going on that were definitely uh, contrary to God's uh, will, if we can put it that way. So the city of Corinth was a, a real challenge when Paul got there. Now, the other reason it would have been a challenge is that Paul may very well have been exhausted and discouraged by the time he got there. If we went back and read all the previous chapters in the book of Acts, what we would find is that Paul had gone into the northern part of Greece and he went into one city, preached in the synagogue, started a church, and then the folks in the city rose up and kicked him out. So he went to the next city, preached in the synagogue, started a church, and the people in the city rose up and they kicked him out. Went to another city, same thing. Preached in the synagogue, started a church, they kicked him out. So he'd just been kicked out of one city after another after another. Started a church, but before things could really get going, he'd been kicked out of each one. Finally, he winds up in Athens. He's all by himself. He sent his companions, who would be Timothy and Silas and Luke, he has sent them back to those other cities to find out how the churches are doing in the face of the opposition that they were uh, experiencing. But he arrives in Athens and he's by himself. And he does what so many people um, do when they're in a city by themselves. He starts uh, just walking around looking at the sights. And uh, he um, winds up on a place called the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, the Hill of Mars. And this was a place where all the philosophers and the cynics and, and uh, the intellectuals, they liked to get together and argue with each other and listen to speeches and things. So when he arrives there, uh, they turn to him and say, well, look, do you have anything to say? And Paul preaches his heart out. It's one of the longest sermons of Paul preserved for us in, in the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 17. is his sermon on Mars Hill. And he's talking to the people and trying to get them to understand that there is one God and that he is the God of their lives and that he has sent Christ to die for them. And as a result, he's preaching his heart out. And as a result, very little response. Some people mock him. Some people laugh at him. Some people say, well, later maybe. A few believe, but not enough to really be uh, uh, encouraging to, to him at this point. And so he leaves Athens having preached not the worst sermon of his life, but the worst received sermon of his life. And he winds up in Corinth, and there he is, kicked out of city after city, having um, not gone, gotten any traction in Athens. And he comes to Corinth, which is a real hard, um, uh, difficult place in which to preach the gospel. So Paul winds up in Corinth, and he is... A tired, discouraged. Verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. Now, Aquila had been born in Pontus. Pontus uh, was located in present-day Turkey in the northeastern corner of Turkey. To put that in perspective, um, Greece and Corinth are all the way to the west of Turkey. Um, Ephesus is on the south southwestern corner of Turkey. So uh, this Aquila, he has uh, been born like 
on the other side of the ocean in, a, in another land, and now Paul is meeting him in Corinth, but in a moment we find out that Aquila had originally been in Rome. So this Aquila guy, he gets around. He's used to traveling, and, and uh, um, he's uh, very, very comfortable with that kind of thing. So it says, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of, of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Now, the reason for this was that Claudius, who is the emperor of Rome, Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, we are not left to speculate on this. We know from, from all history, um, secular history, exactly what had happened. A man by the name of Suetonius uh, wrote a biography of Claudius uh, some years after this, and in that biography he says, Claudius issued a command or an edict that all the Jews had to leave Rome because they were rioting and arguing over a man named Crestus. Everybody agrees that Suetonius got the spelling wrong, and what he spelled Crestus was a reference to Christos. And so the Jews had been kicked out of Rome because the gospel of Christ had come, and the Jews were arguing, and the Christians were proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, and there was sort of this uh, 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 sort of a disagreement and, and, and debate, argument going on, and uh, the Romans, the pagans, uh, seizing any opportunity to get rid of the Jews probably, uh, just decided, well, let's get rid of you. So he kicked all the Jews out of Rome. We know this from secular history. And at that time, then, Aquila and Priscilla have to leave Rome. Now, what we surmise from uh, uh, the, the rest of the scriptures is that Aquila and Priscilla were probably people of means. Uh, they had enough money where they had a business in Rome, but it turns out, and it looks like they also had a business in Corinth because they left Rome. They just went to the, to the uh, field office in Corinth. And uh, later on we read and we find out they probably also established or had a business already in the city of Ephesus because they go and they spend a lot of time there as well. So if you, if, if you see the map, look in the back of your Bible, look at the maps, uh, you'll see that they were business people in Rome, in Corinth, and in Ephesus, and they were just used to traveling back and forth. At this point, they had been kicked out of Rome uh, because of these squabbling in the synagogues over Christ. Uh, this had probably happened, oh, about four or five years before uh, Paul meets them in the city of, of, of Corinth. So uh, that's what's going on here. Now, it says that Paul met them. They'd been kicked out of Rome. Paul met them. Verse 3, and because he... Paul was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Now, the Mishnah, Mishnah is a Jewish writing of the tradition of the rabbis. Um, whenever you read in your Sunday school classes, the rabbis taught, and then they tell you what the rabbis taught, that, that's, that's citing the Mishnah. That's coming out of the, uh, usually, the Mishnah. Sometimes it's out of Josephus. But uh, by and large, that's out of the Mishnah. Well, the, the tradition of the rabbis taught this in a, in a chapter called, uh, you don't really care what it's called. It was called Perkia Both, uh, which means tradition of the elders. But anyway, in, in that book, uh, the Jewish rabbis had taught that if a person was going to be a theological student, they had to get a job, so they had something to fall back on. And Paul wanted to be a theological student, and uh, so he chose a profession. He chose a profession of, of being a, a tent maker. And evidently, Aquila and Priscilla, they were tent makers. They had the tent making industry, and so Paul got a job with them. 
Now, tent making, uh, I always thought of it as being, wow, this, this must be the Coleman Company, and they're setting up tents, and they're all going camping or something like that. By the way, camping for me, rough camping for me, is black and white TV in the hotel room. So we, it just never gets worse than that. But, uh, uh, but Paul would be a, a, a tent maker, but the word actually means a leather worker. Uh, someone, uh, well, the, the tents at that time, be made from, uh, from hides, and, and so that's the origin of the idea of, of the tent maker. But uh, Paul, as a tent maker, would also be the person you would talk to if you wanted a new handbag, or if you wanted a satchel, or if you wanted a belt, or if you wanted a, a pair of, 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 of sandals, or, or, or leather straps, or you know, anything leather, uh, you would go to um, a tent maker, somebody like Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla. And so he gets a job with them, and not only that, but he stays with them. Now, look what has happened. Paul, at sort of a low point in his ministry, a time of discouragement, a time of, of, of just uh, uh, exhaustion, God provides for him a place to work and a place to stay with people who share his faith. We get the feeling that Aquila and Priscilla are already believers in Christ at this point. Nothing in the Scripture says that they uh, came to receive Christ. Uh, Paul, when he talks about the people that he baptized in Corinth, does not mention Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, these kinds of things lead us to believe they were already believers in Jesus Christ at this point. And so God gives to Paul a place to stay, something to do, and people who share his faith that he can be with. This is just a part of the way God works. But you can see why Paul later on would say, I really want you to say hi to these folks. You know, I was, I was at a down point in my life, and they came through for me, so I want you to say hi. So that's why in Romans 16 he says, greet um, uh, Aquila and Priscilla as well. Now, um, they were tent makers. Now, uh, I want to move on to verse 18. Yes, verse 18, still the, the Acts chapter 18. In the intervening verses, there's a riot. Uh, the Jewish people riot against the Christian believers, and they drag the Christians into court, and they're making all kinds of accusations. The pagan ruler, the council, he can't be bothered. He just kicks them out. He says, don't, don't you know, I'm, just leave me alone on this one. And all kinds of things are happening. Um, and... At the conclusion of that, and so you can, you can see that, that Paul, you know, Aquila and Priscilla would be there. They're not mentioned by name in those verses, but they would know about the riot. Paul would have uh, been um, going through that as well. But in verse 18, it says, after this, after the riot, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers, set sail for Syria that is on his way to Jerusalem. He's returning there to make a report or whatever. He set sail for Syria, and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. So they are going to travel with Paul as he goes back. At Sincrea, he cut his hair, he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, and he himself uh, went into the synagogue, and then he travels on. So Aquila and Priscilla stay in Ephesus. Highly unlikely that they said, hey, Paul, we want to go with you. They got as far as Ephesus and said, you know, this is a nice town. I think we'll build a retirement home. More likely, as they said, Paul, will go with you as far as Ephesus because we've got a business there and we're going to check things out there uh, as well. So what we see is Aquila and Priscilla then moving with Paul. They go to Ephesus. Paul goes on. They stay in the city of Ephesus. Why is that important? Well, let me tell you. If you go down to verse 24, now 
A Jew named Apollos. <laughs> I've got to stop and talk about Apollos here for a second. <laughs> this is why I said, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Okay. And trust me, I know, I know that we have to get out of here. But Apollos was kind of a superstar in this area of the world among the Christians. He was like your, your star TV preacher. He, you know, he was the celebrity. If you wanted a conference, put him on the agenda, picture on the pamphlets, let everybody know he was going to be speaking. At the end of it, they might stay for the whole thing, you know, that, that kind of thing. So he was a superstar um, a preacher there in that area. Apollos, as we're going to learn in a moment, was very polished. Uh, he was very learned, very educated, and so um, uh, he, he just had a lot going for him. He was like a really um, attractive kind of person to fill the pulpit. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man and competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. See, he didn't have the whole story of the gospel. He, he had, he had the, the, the bulk of it. He knew about Jesus. He knew about the teachings of Jesus. I'm sure he, he probably understood with John the Baptist that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Those kinds of things he understood. But he didn't know about closing the deal. He didn't know about issuing to people that invitation that said, you need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to ask him in your heart as your Lord and Savior and, and, and uh, undergo baptism in the name of Jesus, pointing to God's grace, God's saving work that takes place in Jesus Christ. And so he didn't know the baptism that is in Jesus' name. He was still doing a John the Baptist kind of baptism, which would have been um, in anticipation of the forgiveness of sins, whereas the baptism of Jesus that we uh, receive is a baptism um, to, to express um, in a dynamic way that God has forgiven our sins. And so he doesn't know about Christian baptism, knows about the baptism of John. Verse 26, you still with me, folks? Still with me? Okay. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, there's a couple of ways to take people aside. You know, one of them is... <laughs> no. <laughs> I was pointing to Bert. Okay. Now, you've done this. If you didn't see it over here, said, you know, that, that, that thing. You know, you, you've done this. That, that means, you know, I'm, I'm going to rake you over the coals. The other way is at the conclusion of this service, say, hey, you know, that was a great sermon. Can I talk to you about it? Now, I love that sermon. Everything you said about Jesus thrilled my heart. Did you know that Jesus died for our sins and commanded us to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Did you know the Holy Spirit pours out upon people when they receive Jesus? You see? When they took him aside, they didn't take him aside to rake him over the coals. They took him aside so that he could have the truth in, in, in a more accurate and in a fuller kind of way. And evidently, Apollos didn't resent that at all. He just said, wow, that, that makes so much sense. Evidently, Aquila and Priscilla had a real skill, a real knack of telling people they were wrong and making them like it. I've known people like that, Debbie. And... Uh, <laughs> 
but that's, that's uh, another thing. So they, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And then uh, he wished to go back to Achaia, which was uh, where Corinth was, and they said, fine, go. So th this is what we learn about Aquila and Priscilla. Now, in Romans chapter 16, we see that they are back in Rome. Okay. So Paul meets them in Corinth. They travel to Ephesus where they, they um, have that, that ministry uh, correcting uh, Apollos. And now somehow they've wound up back in Rome. Claudius, the emperor Claudius, by the way, has, has died at that point. And so they're back in Rome by the time the book of Romans is written. Um, and so uh, Paul s says when he writes the book of Romans, he says, well, you greet them because, you know, they're, they're like really special folk to me. He, he, by the way, he greets them in several other of his letters as well. So that, that's what we're talking about when we talk about Aquila and Priscilla, right? We're talking about two folks together in the ministry uh, who were hospitable, who were engaged in the ministry. God used them to uh, uh, encourage Paul along the way and to, at a very crucial moment uh, in his ministry. And that's why Paul writes this back to Romans chapter 16, verse 3. Y'all going back there? Okay. You're there in your minds. Okay. In Romans 16, 3, and we'll read through verse 5, the very first line of verse 5. It says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Let's bow together in prayer. And Father, today we're reminded that many are struggling because of the storms and the winds of life, having suffered physical loss, some even the loss of loved ones and family members. There's a lot of cleanup to do and a lot of restoration to do, a lot of work to bring power back on and to get people back in their homes. And yet you are the God of the wind and the waves, and you're the God of all power. And so, Father, we ask that you would intervene and that by your grace you would give wisdom and strength and safety to those who are working and, and, and uh, providing assistance and help, that you would be the great comforter to those who have suffered loss. Father, that you would help folks in our land put their lives back together because of this storm. But, Father, we also know that there are storms all over the world and there are people who have suffered loss all over the world. There are folks whose lives need to be put back together all over the world, and you are God all over the world. And so I would pray that all over the world your grace would be poured out and that in the name of Jesus people would see how trust and faith in you give strength, hope, and wisdom to life. Father, even in times of great storms and great uh, calamity, you are Lord, you are God, and you are glorious. And we thank and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Briefly, in the 40 minutes that we have left, <laughs> and in the 10 in which you'll stay with me. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You would have to say that Aquila and Priscilla were a power couple. In today's world, the, the phrase is used of a power couple, and it basically means a celebrity couple that if they post a picture on Facebook, it just blows up, and if they uh, change their clothing, they, they set a fad trend, and, and so um, uh, the phrase power couple is really used in the sense of being able to influence people and get them to do what you want. Uh, the phrase power couple, by the way, was first used in the 1980s, and the first couple to be described as a power couple was 
Bob and Elizabeth Dole. Um, by the blank stairs, I realize some of you haven't heard of them. He was a senator. She was a member of the cabinet. But they had a lot of power, and they could influence things and make things happen. That is not what I mean by a Christian power couple. A Christian power couple is not a couple that has uh, authority and bosses people around and tells them what to do. A Christian power couple is a couple filled with the power of God in Christ Jesus. A Christian power couple is one that the power of God flows into and out of to minister in the name of Jesus Christ. A Christian power couple is a couple whose marriage, whose relationship is filled with the Holy Spirit and the power of God. And so in that sense, Aquila and Priscilla were a Christian power couple. We know they were a power couple, first of all, because they were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and they were believers together. Now, I understand not all marriages work out that way. Sometimes a couple gets married, one becomes a Christian, the other does not, and so there's an imbalance there. I understand that, that not always is there a, a similarity of the depth of commitment or the depth of faith or the strength of, 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 of knowledge in, in, among husband and wife, and so they, there can be those kinds of things. But the goal that we have in mind is is that we would be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ together. That's the foundation for the Christian view of marriage. When Paul talks about marriage in, in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, wives, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be submissive to your husbands as if to the Lord. Now, I'll just leave that there and move on. No, but what he's really talking about is he's saying this. Jesus Christ died for you. He gave absolutely everything for you. And in your marriage, ladies, you honor God and you praise God for the gift of Jesus Christ in your life by making your life available for the welfare of your husband that through you he can become all that God wants him to be, that you will be God's servant and instrument in his life. I will leave it at that. Now, the other thing is, Paul says is, ladies, you be submissive. But he says, husbands, you love your wives, and you love them the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In other words, ladies, if you have to be submissive, husbands, you need to die for her. That means you're the first to go. And she'll remind you of that from time to time. <laughs> but the husband comes first in the marriage. He's the first to say, I'm sorry. He's the first to say, I love you. He's the first to say, I pray about it. He's to provide the spiritual leadership in the home. And uh, that's, that's the picture that Paul presents in Ephesians 5 of what a Christian marriage is, is, is about. But it's based on the, on, the, on the premise that husband and wife together have received the Lord Jesus Christ separately and brought that into the identity of their marriage. And so to be a power couple in Christ, first of all, you have to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. And I would just invite you, those of you who are married, those of you thinking about it, those who are around married people, those who encourage married people in whatever venue to encourage, first of all, that personal deep faith commitment to Jesus Christ 
as Lord and Savior. They were a power couple, secondly, uh, because they shared a ministry together. Um, Paul says that they were fellow workers. They were fellow workers in Christ Jesus with him. Uh, and there's something about working together in the work and the life of the gospel. Um, Debbie and I have some acquaintance with that, but I can tell you that there, there, there's some things about looking back over the years. And, and um, you may not remember uh, mimeograph machines, you know, that thing where you turn the handle and the wheel rent, went around and then you opened the lid and you pulled out a number and it was beast. No, no, that, that was a different machine. <laughs> But the mimeograph machine was a big drum thing, and you had, had stencils, and you typed on them, and, and they had the correction fluid. You remember the blue correction fluid, some of you? Yes. You know how happy you got when you smelled it? <laughs> you know that? Yeah, just, uh, but, it, but anyway, that, that was back when cut and paste really was cut and paste. You actually physically cut things out and pasted them on, things like that. But, but to do things and to work together in the body of Christ and to work together in the church is a great um, strengthening of the relationship. And the power of God works through you and accomplishes things in the body of Christ that he, that he would not otherwise. And so uh, they were a power couple because they were working together and sharing the ministry together in the church. But they were also a couple together because they were just riding the great adventure of Jesus together. Paul phrased it this way. He said, they stuck their necks out for me. You know, they put their neck on the line. Uh, is, is almost the way that the, the Greek uh, would have it. In other words, they were willing to take a risk, and they were willing to do that together, to dare great things. You know, life is an adventure. You know? life, is a, life is a roller coaster. I remind you about that. You don't get to steer. You just get to hang on and scream a lot. But um, that's, that's the adventure of life. But when you do that in Christ and when your, your marriage is brought together so that you are exalting God in the great adventure of life together, um, that, that's just such a, a blessing to the church. And then, and then God is able to work through you as a power couple in his hands. So we look at, at Aquila and Priscilla and we see what a great couple they were. And so this morning, I would, I would just challenge you, because I, I do know what the time is, but I would just challenge you to think through about your marriage or about how you can support the marriages of others, that you just think about being a power couple for Christ. Ask yourself, first of all, do I thank God for my spouse? See, it really begins there. Do I thank God for my spouse? I thank God for mine. Um, she puts up with a lot. Um, all she, said was, all she said was, amen. She didn't say, amen. But anyway. But she puts her, I, I'm thankful for the spirit of Christ in her. I'm, I'm thankful for, for uh, her abilities. I'm thankful for her, her willingness to invest that in, in the lives around me. I'm just so thankful. You know, we, got, we met when we were 18 uh, in, in high school. Uh, I was a high school kid when I met Debbie. I did not have enough brains to pick out a wife that good. I knew she was pretty, and I knew she was popular. I knew she could sing. I knew she was accomplished. I knew all those things, but I did not know how wonderfully deep she would be as a pastor's wife. But God chose her and allowed me to be her spouse and to walk with her uh, through life together. I am so thankful to God. And if you can, you know, just go, you know, go to God and thank God for your spouse. And you're saying, you don't know my spouse. It's easy for you, Wayne. You married an angel. <laughs> And I will deny all of this when I get home. But, <laughs> but the thing is, if you will search for something 
that God is doing in the life of your spouse and be thankful for that. It'll stop you from doing that grousing and complaining that you normally do. You know that list that you have of everything that's wrong with her? Get rid of that and start writing a list of everything that God is doing in her life to make, to, to make your life better. And just be thankful for your spouse. Secondly, learn Christ from one another. In other words, be like Jesus. We've been looking at Romans chapter 12, and one of the things we've seen is that God's destiny for every believer is that we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so if the Holy Spirit is working in, in, in our lives, then together as husband and wife, we'll see that Holy Spirit conforming my spouse more and more to look like Jesus so I can learn more about Jesus by looking at my spouse as he works in her life. And then make sure that your spouse can see more and more of Jesus in your life can see more of his grace and more of his love and more of his mercy so that uh, um, you're learning and you're teaching Jesus to one another. And then be, just be satisfied with each other. Just be happy with one another. This is God's calling and God's plan for you. Now, I understand about, about marriages where, where one partner has gone uh, you know, terribly abusive or, or has followed a path of addiction or unfaithfulness, and I, I, I get that. But God's plan is that we would be satisfied with one another because we're satisfied with Christ and we're satisfied with God's work in our, in our spouses. So be satisfied with one another. But most of all, most of all, be married for the glory of God in Christ Jesus for the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, every marriage is about something. Every marriage is going to be about something. Make that something bigger than you are. Make that something the glory of God. See, most people, they say, well, what is your marriage about? And they'll, they'll probably say, well, our marriage is about the kids. And, and, and that's really what happens is, and so you're working for the kids, and you're driving them here, there, and you forget to be married because you're so busy being mom and dad. And when the kids leave home, you look at each other and you realize, I don't know who you are anymore. Because your marriage was about something very, very good, but it was about the kids, and it wasn't about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you keep Christ at the very center and the very heart of your marriage, as you deal with the kids, as, as, you know, you, you, you sacrifice for them and you raise them up as best you can and you pray for them, all those kinds of things. But when the day comes and the nest is empty, you look at each other and you say, you know, I, I've seen you every day because we've come to the throne of grace together every day. Make your marriage about something bigger than you are, and that is the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what will keep you together. And that's what will make you a power couple in Christ. And so my challenge for you today is that those of you who are married, you, know, you may want to do it overtly. You may just want to in purpose in your heart that you're going to do these things because you want the power of God to be seen in your relationship, in your home, with your spouse, so that you can give God the glory as a power couple in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer. And Father, we are so thankful that in spite of our faults and frailties, weaknesses, and in spite of our foolishness, you're still able to use us. And Father, it's a mystery to us, but you bring us together in the home and the marriage, and you make us one, and you give yourself the glory and the praise for it, and we just thank you and praise you. But I would lift up the folks in this room. I would pray for marriages that are in distress and relationships that have hit a rocky spot. I, I, would, I would pray for relationships and marriages that... Uh, Father, um, look as though there's, there, there, no, there is no hope. But Father, I pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit and that hope would be reborn. Not a hope based on human strength and wisdom. Father, the hope that is based in you and in your grace and mercy toward us. Father, for homes that are doing well, I just pray an added measure of joy 
that each and every eye and each and every home and each and every marriage would turn heavenward to give you the praise, the honor, and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Just now.